Good evening. It's good to be here with you this evening, and although I'm not happy that my brother is sick, in fact, I'm very regretful of it, but he uh, sends his regards to everyone, I am happy this evening to have the opportunity to worship here with you. I didn't know this morning when I woke up that I was going to be preaching today, but uh, this afternoon when we got home from church this morning, Adrian wasn't feeling good, so, you know, we called and said, Adrian's not feeling too great. Uh, he's not going to be able to come, but would you still like a Judd? And they said, well, sure, why not? Uh, do you want one that we said, uh, do you want one with more hair or with less hair? And uh, they said more hair, and so here I am. It's good to be with you here this evening. I love to have the opportunity to worship God. I love to be in God's presence and with God's people and to offer him the praise that he deserves. We had a great scripture reading tonight and a wonderful prayer, not that I'm biased, but one thing I love probably slightly more than everything else is singing. I love to sing praises to God. It's one of my favorite things to do in all the world. And so tonight at the outset of this lesson, I want you to look with me at the words of a familiar hymn. The words say, Man of sorrows, what a name, for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. These are the words to a familiar song written by Philip P. Bliss in 1875, now well over 100 years ago. As far as I know, Mr. Bliss was not a member of the Lord's Church, but I think he captures here something that we all must and need to remember. We have an amazing Savior. This evening, I want to help you re realize, help you remember the amazingness of Jesus. I want to look at three different things with you this evening. I want to look at what Jesus left what Jesus endured, and what he has given us the opportunity to gain. So let's waste no time here. First, look with me at what Jesus left behind. Jesus left heaven and came to earth. Jesus is a very interesting person for many reasons. But I was thinking about this as I reacquainted myself with this lesson this afternoon. We didn't make the decision to be born. You didn't have a consciousness before your birth that said, you know, I think I'm going to be born today. We didn't have that option. But Jesus, Jesus was the only person to ever decide to be born. Something very interesting. See, Jesus decided to come to earth. He wasn't forced to. He wasn't made to. He came by his own choice. But the place that he left behind wasn't like earth. It wasn't like anything we can even imagine. The place he left behind is a place we call heaven. I want you to look with me at a place in the Bible that tells us a little bit about what heaven is like. Grab your Bible, open it, and turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, and I want to look with you at verses 18 to 21. 
Revelation 21, verses 18 through 21. Here we see a description of heaven. It says there, the construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third caledony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophaz, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Here we have a physical, if you will, description of heaven. We see here all these things that we hold in such high value, all these precious stones and gold, the most precious of metals, even pearls. But I want you to realize with me this evening, this is a physical description of heaven. Heaven is not a physical place. See, heaven is a spiritual place. So as amazing as this description is to our ears, it really can't even come close to what heaven really will be like. For example, God is a spirit, and so he doesn't have physical attributes. But in the Bible, it talks about the hand of God. Now, does God really have hands? Well, no, not in the way that we think about it. See, the Bible is putting it in physical terms so that we can understand it. That's what they're doing with heaven here. But heaven, even described in physical terms, is a beautiful, incredible place that anybody would want to go to. But I want you to also realize that Jesus, being an eternal member of the Godhead, had always existed in heaven. And so heaven was, if you will, Jesus' home. See, we cannot understand fully what God is like because God has always existed and always will. He has no beginning or end like we think of time. And because of that, Jesus has always existed. And the place that he always existed before he came to earth was heaven. And so it was like his home. You know, many, I'm sure, of the people in this room have had to leave home at some point. A lot of the people my age, we're getting ready to do that very near in the future. But if you've left home, I'm sure you can understand more of what this truly means. See, Jesus was leaving the place that he knew best. I'm sure it was the place he was obviously most comfortable. It was his home, and he left it. He left heaven, a place of indescribable beauty, a place that was his home, but also a place that was devoid of any pain or sorrow. Look at Revelation 21 again and look at verse 4. It says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. See, heaven, it's a more beautiful place than we can imagine. And it's a place that is perfect. There is no pain. There is no sorrow. And Jesus left that. He left a beautiful, perfect place that was his home, and he came to earth. And now, realize with me, 
Jesus knew what he was getting into, if you will. He didn't leave heaven thinking, oh, you know, I'm just going to have a nice vacation on earth. It's going to be a good time. may have a little fun down there. No, Jesus knew when he left heaven. He knew what he was coming to. He knew what earth was like. He knew the pain he would have to endure. But he left it anyway. And we leave, we leave ourselves asking why. Why would you leave a perfect place, a place that was so beautiful, and come to earth knowing what it was like? Why would you do that? Hold on to that question just a little longer, if you will. So that, that's what Jesus left. But now look with me at what Jesus endured. What did Jesus endure here on his time on earth? Have you thought about that lately? See, Jesus was the Son of God in human form, simultaneously 100% man and 100% God in a way that we can't even fathom. Jesus, if anyone in history has ever deserved to have the perfect life, it was him. If there's anyone in history who deserved to be given everything the world has to offer, well, it was Jesus. So did Jesus live a luxurious life? Did Jesus even live... A comfortable life? Well, the answer is no. Compared to every single person in this room right now, Jesus was poor. Jesus lived in poverty. Just think about where Jesus was born. Jesus wasn't born in a state-of-the-art hospital with all the finest medical equipment to make sure everything was all right. Jesus wasn't even born in a comfortable home. He was born in a stable with animals. And when he was born, he wasn't laid down on a soft, comfortable bed where he could rest. No, he was, he was put in a feed trough. Jesus, Jesus didn't have the most luxurious of lives. You know, we aren't given much information about Jesus' life between his birth and when he started his ministry, other than the account of when he went to the temple at the age of 12. There's many stories, and that's all that they are, but there's some things we can assume. See, like most people in this time and in the particular place that he lived, he probably didn't have a, a lot of money growing up. He probably went hungry some nights. They probably didn't have a lot of food. And Jesus, although he was perfect, he still had to work. He still had to have the things that he gained by work. He probably, in all likelihood, learned his father's trade of carpentry. And even once Jesus began his ministry, he didn't live a comfortable life. You would think if anybody could live a good life, it'd be somebody who was trying to save the whole world, right? No. Jesus and the apostles, they lived a nomadic lifestyle, moving from place to place. The Bible even tells us in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, it says, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but... The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus didn't even have a place to put his head at night. He endured a life of hardship, a life of poverty, a life of hard work, and he did it all for us. But there's something that Jesus endured far greater than anything that we can imagine. See, we can, we can somewhat imagine these other things. We can imagine, you know, maybe not having 
quite enough money to meet the bills at the end of the month. We can imagine having to work hard for what we have. This is America after all. But there's one thing that Jesus went through that none of us can even come close to fathoming. And that, of course, is the cross. Understand with me here, Jesus was perfect. He was without flaw. He never made a single mistake. Jesus was the promised Messiah. For thousands of years before his birth, the biblical writers had been writing, prophesying, saying there's going to be one that comes, one who's going to save you, your king. He was the promised Messiah. And yet those who had the job of studying the law, those who should have known the prophecies, they should have recognized him. They're the ones who put him to death. They're the ones who murdered him. We already read Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 9, and an excellent reading it was. But look there with me once again. I want to emphasize this passage to you. Oftentimes we'll read this before partaking of the Lord's Supper in order to prepare our minds for the serious nature of that act. But look at it with me here just one more time. It says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have, every, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence nor was any deceit found in his mouth. See, folks, Jesus, he wasn't anything special to look at. He wasn't some supermodel that everyone wanted to be around just because of how good he looked. No, he was just, he was just an average man. Jesus, he was arrested on false charges because as we've already stated, he was perfect. He'd never made a single mistake in his life. They arrested him on a made-up story. He was beaten within an inch of his life. 
and an act that the Romans call scourging, something truly terrible. A lot of prisoners died just from it. Then he was made to carry a tree. He was made to carry a tree all the way out of the city and up onto a hill called the Skull. When they got there, they nailed him to the very tree that he had carried that far. And then tipped it up like a fence post and put it in the ground. And he hung there, one nail through each wrist and one through both feet. As he hung there, he would have had his lungs compressed where he couldn't even take a breath. Just to take a breath, he would have had to pull himself up by the nails, just driving them further into his skin. And then our Savior died. Even after his death, his disrespect continued, and they put a spear in his side. That's the physical pain he went through. But think about the mental pain that Jesus went through. He was mocked, made fun of. This is the king of the universe we're talking about here, and these men were making fun of him. He was cursed. He was spit upon. He was rejected by those who should have accepted him and welcomed him as a king. And he willingly took on all the sin of every person in history and died for them. Think about what it feels like after you've done something wrong, after you've committed a sin. When your conscience starts to work, you feel guilty, you feel bad. Jesus endured not just one sin, not just two or three. He put all the sins of the whole world, not just the people who were alive at his time, every person before him, every person after him, even the sins that haven't even been committed yet. He took on all the sin of every person in all of time, and he put them on his back, and he died for them. Think about the crushing weight that must have been. He did it for you. He did it for me. Do you understand what Jesus has done for all of us? And if you do, can you really say anything less than hallelujah? What a savior we have. Jesus left heaven. He came to earth. He endured everything that the world could throw at him. And now, I want to look at what we gain from it. You see, when we as people go through pain, oftentimes it's for a purpose. Think about when we play sports. You know, if you want to be good, you got to work at it. It's not fun really to get up in the morning and go for a run. It's not fun to hit the weight room. It's not fun to eat right most of the time. But we do it so we can get better, so we can get stronger. We do the pain to get the gain. What did Jesus gain from this? Jesus went through more pain than we can even imagine. So what did he gain from it? Surely there must have been something or he wouldn't have done it. It makes no logical sense. He didn't gain a single thing from it. You see, Jesus is part of the Godhead. He has everything. There's nothing we could give him. There's nothing he could gain. He is God. He already has it all. Instead, he did it not so that he could gain, but so that we 
could. He sacrificed himself for us. So what do we gain? We gain the chance to live in heaven eternally with him. We don't just have this automatically. He didn't die and everyone's saved. No, we have to obey his word. We've got to keep the commandments. Look what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. That's Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46. What kind of people are going to be in heaven? It says there, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So what kind of people are going to have eternal life? Righteous people. How do we live righteously? Well, to live righteously, we have to be willing to give up everything for the cause of Christ. Turn over just a few pages to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, look with me at verses 28 to 30. It says there, So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left house or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. So we have to be willing to give up everything for the cause of Christ. Now this doesn't mean I want you to go and I want you to move out of this country. I want you to leave everyone you know behind and you're going to live as a monk in some monastery. All you're going to do all day is study God's word. might eat a couple of times. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is there may come a day, there may come a time, even in this country, when it might be illegal to worship God as we are right now. And in that time, you'll be presented with a choice. Are you going to follow what this country says, what your land says, as this passage puts it, or are you going to follow what God says? If you want to go to heaven, it's not even a choice. We've got to follow what God says. See, there may come a time or a place where someone in your family, maybe someone who is over your family, has authority, will say, we're not going to worship God anymore in this family. And you have a choice. Are you going to follow them, or are you going to follow God? See, Jesus is telling us here that if he's not our number one priority, if we're not willing to give up everything, and I mean everything with no exceptions, to follow him, then we're not going to inherit eternal life. There's many things we're going to have to sacrifice in order to receive life in heaven. We've got to be willing to give up our earthly possessions. See, we often think of the story of the rich young ruler, a man who had it all, came to Jesus and he asked him, what do I lack? Jesus told him, he said, I've been doing that since I was born. Anything else? Jesus says, you've got to sell everything you've got, give it to the poor and follow me. And he couldn't do it. He was too attached to his worldly possessions. Now, I'm not telling you right now you've got to go out and sell everything. What I'm telling you is you've got to put God above everything else. We've got to remember to use our worldly possessions, especially of how blessed we are here in this country. We've got to use them for the cause of Christ. But there is one thing that you must give up. There is no option for this one. This is not a hypothetical. This is something that you must give up immediately. We have to give up sin. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. 
And look at verse 23. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. And the Bible says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin leads to death, not life. Now it's easy for us to sit here and say, Give up sin? All right, done. I'm never going never gonna to sin again. Unfortunately, that's not possible. We're all going to make mistakes, but we have to repent of them and turn back to God when those things happen. But giving up sin, while it sounds easy, it may not be. See, when we sin, it's us putting our will in front of God's will. We're saying, you know, God, he told me to do this, but I really want to do that. We have to put God's will first. It may sound like I'm telling you, you're going to have to give up a lot of things to follow Jesus. And as it turns out, you're right. There's many things that we're going to have to sacrifice in order to follow our Lord. But I want you to think with me just for a second about what Jesus sacrificed, what Jesus gave up, just so that he could give us the chance, not a guarantee, but just the chance that we might follow him. Think about all that he gave up just for that. And then compare it to what you think you might have to give up. There's not really a comparison, is there? Through the sacrifice of Christ, we have a chance to have eternal life. So now we come back to that question that we looked at right at the outset. Why? Why did Jesus leave heaven? Why did he endure all that he did on earth? Why did he give us the chance to live with him eternally? You know, the answer is one that you might think quite cliche. It's an answer that is given in almost every single Disney movie that's ever put out on planet Earth. But before Disney took this as their answer to everything, God and biblical love was already the answer. See, love is the answer. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. And not this sphere that we live on, not the physical earth. It's talking about us, the people. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus loved us so much that he sacrificed everything just to give us a chance of eternal life. I'm reminded of the words of yet another song. A song that I've only sang actually a handful of times in my life. Only one song leader that I can remember at one congregation we were at at a time led this song. But its words always stuck with me. The song's called, If That Isn't Love. And I want to read you the first verse in the chorus. It says, He left the splendor of heaven, knowing his destiny was the lonely hill of Golgotha, there to lay down his life for me. If that isn't love, then the ocean is dry. There's no stars in the sky, and the sparrow can't fly. If that isn't love, then heaven is a myth. There's no feeling like this if that isn't love. Truly, we can say, what Jesus did for us was love. 
And with all that in mind, can you really say anything less than hallelujah? What an amazing Savior we have. But I want to tell you tonight, the good news of the gospel is not that Jesus died. See, Jesus had to die. It was a sacrifice that had to be made. He had to die so that we could be forgiven of our sins. But we don't rejoice because Jesus died. We rejoice because he rose again on the third day. We rejoice because Jesus lives. And in his word, he lays out a step-by-step -step plan so that we can live with him for all eternity. Are you part of God's family tonight? If you're not, there's just a simple plan you must follow. You've got to hear God's word. That doesn't just mean you let it bounce off your eardrum and say, oh yeah, I heard it. No, you have to hear it. You have to understand what it means. Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. You must believe that Christ is the son of God, that he left heaven. He came here. He died for you, and he rose again. Mark 16, 16. The next step is you have to repent. You have to repent of your sins. It's like you're walking in a line. You do a 180 degree turn. Stop walking towards sin. Start walking toward God. Does it mean you'll be perfect? Absolutely not. No one can be. But it means when you fail, you repent again and again and again, as many times as it takes. Then you must confess the name of Jesus, Matthew 10, 32, and be baptized, fully immersed in water, an act that is the same as Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We die to sin, we're buried in the water, and we rise as a new creature in Christ. Acts 2.38 and Mark 16.16. 16. Maybe you are a Christian tonight. Many of us in this room are. Maybe you forgot what an amazing Savior you have. Maybe as you went through your day-to-day -day life, you lost track what your number one priority has to be. Maybe you strayed off the path. See, the amazing thing about God is that he's always going to give you another chance. As many times as you are willing to repent and try your best, God's going to forgive you. Tonight, if you need to put on Christ in baptism, if you need to come back to the church. Maybe you just need prayers of strength. Maybe you're going through a hard time. Whatever your need is, don't wait. Please come as we stand and as we sing together.